I get an amen? Spirit, leave me. I don't, I don't even want worship to stop. I'm wrecked already. <laughs> uh, the tears are flowing. I'm going to say this. Real men do cry, okay? And uh, real men do wear pink sometimes. Right, brother? Um, but listen, I, I just, I heard this said, and I can't, I'm a worshiper at heart. I mean, in the shower, wherever it goes down, it goes down, right? And we're having this moment here to say, I heard this said one time, and I think it's so true. And, and John, I thank you, man, for the gift that God's given you and, and the worship team to lead us into the presence of the Lord this morning. I mean, that's, it's more than just the songs we sing. I heard it said, worship, worship is more than melody and lyric, but it's a sermon people will remember. And I pray that, well, like John just said, he took that uh, led by the Spirit to let us know that is that our prayer this morning. Spirit, lead me, right? Sometimes where my feet may fail, but I know you never will. God, I, that's my prayer this morning. Uh, this is not about me, uh, what I have to share this morning. I mean, God's put some stuff on my heart to basically share with you all. But at the end of the day, this is not about, uh, some, call, some people call me Stephen, but the full name Stephenthon. Try to take that one in, all right? Stephenthon Holland, okay? And uh, it's not about, it is my life that the Lord has blessed me to live and continue, hopefully, for a while, right? As long as he gives me breath, but it's really his story. Amen? Um, so let me take a moment, just so I'm not some bald-headed, fluffy guy that you're just meeting for the first time ever in your life, right? Most of you, except for maybe some of my camp folks. Uh, by the way, it's great to see you all. I hope you're pushing and driving for the glory of the Lord. Um, but when I, here's, here's who I am. Uh, I've been a youth pastor uh, for about 12 years, working with students somewhere in that capacity. I went to school and got my degree in youth ministry and played a little baseball in college and met my uh, beautiful wife here, Rachel. Uh, we have three beautiful daughters. You heard that right. There's no boys in my life other than me, okay? <laughs> so I don't know if that's a blessing. Some, most days it is. Of course, Pastor, you got four right here. But uh, I, I'm, I'm not trying again, okay? I'm, I'm good. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, so all women in my life. But, um, but besides Rachel, my wife, uh, we have Isabella. She's nine. Uh, we call her Izzy. Uh, we have our six-year-old. Uh, Eliana, she uh, obviously she's six, and then we have Cadix, which rules the roost. She's three right now, so they're exactly three years apart right now. Uh, but we're blessed to have those beautiful children, and I'll get more into them later. But so I, I am a husband of ten years, um, awesome ten years, by the way, right? Ten years and also a father. So I, so I'm coming there. That's my heart, but also being a minister. Um, so within the, in that in that twelve years of ministry, I've been obviously in student ministry, but the last um, the last year in full time staff ministry in Tampa, Florida, I actually felt God call me to do kind of what John's role is in leading worship. So I led I led worship full time about five services a week to be exact. It was crazy, right? But it was an honor uh, to do that. So that's kind of where I'm coming with ministry. But then then God kind of. I mean, through a total curveball. Talk about the song we just sang. Hey, Spirit, lead me. You've got to be careful, right? If we're going to pray that prayer and, and say that to the Lord, we better, better be ready, right? Because trust me, my feet have failed so many times, and I'm sure they will again. But with his grace, right, we keep moving. Uh, he called me out on the waters. And so really about the last two years, uh, year and a half, what, what we've been doing, my family and I, uh, we actually... Uh, travel as much as the Lord will allow us to do and and to do this ministry we call the journey uh, which is sharing my testimony my heart 
which really rests in what we're about here to talk about today. Uh, I don't want to spill the beans quite yet, but we travel. I lead worship at times, and then sometimes I speak, and sometimes I do both. Uh, but that's what this, where the Lord has called us, the water he's called us out on right now. So we are a support-based ministry. So here's what I have to do, the unashamed plug, right? Because I don't want it to hinder the spirit. I would love for you to come by when I get done talking and check out my book, all right? So everything I'm about to share with you is in here, most of it, okay? I'd love to sign one for you. And then also, but even more importantly than that, I would love for you to take a prayer card so you can pray for my family as we walk out into the waters. Sometimes we're trying to figure out, okay, does this boat have a motor, right? I mean, the oars, are they here, right? Sometimes we're there. Y'all, y'all understand what, we're, what I'm saying there? Uh, it's not always smooth sailing, but, we, but we're called to step out. So uh, as, as I shared, just know where I'm coming from. All right, so enough of that, all right? So let's get into the good stuff. Um, I have a date to share with you first, and then you, you have a little bit of an active role this morning, okay? You have to remember my birth date. You ready for it? Everybody ready? March 31st, 1982. What, when was it? Okay, there's a significance there. So, and I'm going to be honest with you. I get rolling, the spirit gets moving, and sometimes I forget. So do not let me forget. It's your jobs right here. Don't let me forget that date, okay? Before, if I try to walk off, whoa, stop me, okay? Because I want to drive something home. So March 31st, 1982, that's when this bald-headed, fluffy guy was brought into this world. God graced me with life, okay? So I grew up in an amazing family, uh, my, my mom and my dad, I had, uh, I've got two brothers that are, uh, that are much older, Ricky, wait, wait, wait for this, Ricky, Rod, then two sisters, Renee and Robin. What's my name? I don't know what happened there, right? So they said they were going to name me Rocky, but I'm kind of glad they didn't do that, but you know, it didn't work out, didn't pan out, they, they, they named me Stevenson, okay? I'll get into that later. But right, so I have, so my, my brothers, uh, so I grew up, my brothers, Ricky, uh, he, he was, he's actually, um, man, he's, he's pushing 60 now, right? And I'm, I'm 35, almost 35, I gave myself a year, that's really bad. All right, 34, be 35 in March, and then, then my brother Rod, you know, they're all about in their uh, late 40s to, to 50, but here I'm at 30, 35, so something's going on there, right? But I, so I grew up, I've been an uncle since I was age two. Okay, I, I've, I've, got ele- I've got 11 nieces and nephews, right, six nieces, five nephews. Uh, my, my uh, Rachel and I's three daughters, uh, my parents now have, I'm not very good at math, 14, 14 grandchildren, okay. So it's just, I mean, Thanksgiving at my house, loved it. Obviously, I love to eat. I'm cool. I love fried chicken, okay, uh, not going to lie there. Thanksgiving at my house, we had 70, 80 people, right. That's just kind of how it went down. So family was huge in my life, okay? So, so, I, so, so this, is, this is my life, you know, Thanksgiving, this kind of stuff. So I get to, there's a pivotal moment I'm, I'm leading up to here. When I was about somewhere around eight, eight years old, I believe, if I, and it, I remember correctly, at eight years old, uh, I'm at school, uh, just kind of going through school, and, and uh, I had some, I'm going to put quotes around this, friends, acquaintances in my life that stepped into my life and said, uh, this was the words they used, man, you're weird. I'm like, what, weird? I mean, I know I'm not all there all the time, but what are you talking about? And basically what they said was, I'm like, weird, what are you talking about? 
I said, well, your mom's, your mom's white, but you're not. You're, you're, you're brown or, or black or something, right? You're in between, somewhere out in there, but you're not, you don't look like the rest of your family. You're weird. And, of course, I, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm laughing it off, but inside, I'm going to be honest with you, it ripped me apart. I'm like, what? Because have I ever seen myself as being different than the rest of my family since I was eight? You know, hey, this is newsflash. <laughs> Wait a minute. I am brown, right? Mom, you know, so, so here's how it went down. So I heard that at school, and then I go home, and, you know, I loving family. My mom, dad kissed me at night, you know, tucked me in, that whole thing. So I'm sitting there in bed, and, and I'm just going to be honest with you, the floodgates opened up. I mean, not like just the little tears, like ugly crying. You know what I'm saying? Your face gets distorted and snot and tears. Listen, I'm real, okay? I, this is too important for me to share. I'm just going to be real and tell you how it is, okay? I'm sitting there crying with, with my mom, you know, uh, on the bed, and I'm like, Mom, I, I literally had a bomb dropped on me at school because she's asking me what's wrong, and I said, Mom, these kids were so mean to me at school. They told me I was weird and different. They said my skin color was different than yours, and she's, son, it is, you know? I'm like, oh, yeah. Why? Why? Okay? I, I deserve to know that. Right? And she's like, and this is what she, t- and she loved, when I shared this story, she's like, you better tell them I told you at five years old before you started kindergarten. You just don't remember it. Right? She's like, I, I told you at five, five years old, son, because I knew this day was probably going to come. But at eight years old, it, in your mind, you're finally hearing it for the first time. Right? So she sat me down, and, and as much as an eight-year-old could understand, in that moment, I learned that I was adopted into the Holland family. Uh, this is, and this is what she told me. She brought out a folder that had eight pages of typewriter paperwork from 1982, okay? So from March 31st, 1982 on, um, she said, son, we brought you into our family when you were seven days old. She said, you were literally on death's doorstep. You were on the same bottle that you left the hospital with. I mean, which is not good. Obviously, as an eight-year-old, I didn't realize that. But you mamas out there, family, that's not good. Um, they said, we don't really know a lot about your, you know, your, your mother or your father uh, other than what's in this paperwork right here. So eight pages is what we've got. Um, we just know that she couldn't take care of you, and we took you in. So, and she said, so what, so what went down is we, we, we brought you in at seven days old. Uh, as a foster child, and we decided, you know, we're going to give you a, give you a place. And and uh, at six months old, we realized really quickly that, hey, this is this is our baby. We we want to we want to do an adoption for him. Well, when we went through to go through that process, uh, I, I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, by the way, right outside of Chattanooga. And uh, the state of Tennessee, the Department of Human Services, said, well, you know, this is a biracial kid. This is a white home. We're not really sure if that's going to be the best fit for him. So we feel like for the betterment of this child, we sh- he should be placed in either an African-American home or a biracial couple. And the war. <laughs> uh, in my book, my mom, I give, I, we interviewed my mom, my adopted mother, and she says, uh, some of you uh, young at heart people can understand this. I had to research it actually on Google. But uh but she said uh, it was like a Jerry Lee Lewis telethon down at the uh, at Human Services. Like we, I have, I still have in possession to this day about 700 petition letters with churches, communities, business owners that wrote in to Human Services on behalf of the Holland family to keep this this baby that they called their own 
and that, that they've nursed back to health have given life for the, for the last six months. So we don't feel like it would be at the best interest of this child, even though you think it does, to, to rip him away from people that do nothing but love him. And they call him their son. So from six months old to age two, they battled and they fought for little Stephen's life. Okay, And at age two, after a lot of battle and paperwork, they officially adopted me into their family. My last name went from Holt to Holly. I took their name at age two years old. So I've been with my family since I was seven days old. Okay? So we got that side. But I'm going to be honest with you. As an eight-year-old, to have a bomb, and I call it a bomb because literally I felt I was struggling with why would, why would a mother not want her son? Why? I know that I'm loved. I've never really questioned that. But, but here I am thinking like, okay, but they're not my blood, right? They're not my family, really. Or are they? You know what I'm saying? But as an eight-year-old, I'm struggling. Like, I didn't know that I was a different color than them until that moment, right? So I'm feeling frustrated and angry. And then I'm hearing this word that the kids at school told me, you're weird. You're different. So I'm just being real with you today, right? As an eight-year-old, I'm struggling, okay, to find belonging and to find, okay, am I different? Am I weird? You know, am I wanted? Am I loved? Y'all got to think about this is how powerful God is. I had a, uh, my grandparents obviously being adopted were much older than me. My grandmother uh, was Mimi. We called her Mimi Jones and Papa Jones. Anybody seen Hee Haw? Okay, Grandpa Jones. I thought I thought it was live TV on Saturday nights. You know what I'm saying? It was reruns. I, I just found out like two years ago, <laughs> right? I grew up this whole time thinking I was watching Grandpa Jones live, you know? But uh, I, I spent so much time with them, and they poured into my life because my mom, my adopted family, my dad worked in the coal mine, okay? I thought he was black for a few years because he'd come <laughs> home every night, you know, just covered in soot. I'm just being honest, right? And then, then, then my mom was a school teacher. Right, and she was she had four kids of her own plus the, you know they had ten foster kids at one time, okay take that in right, and then she, then they had brought me in adopted me and she still went to school teaching during the day and getting her masters at night you know administration masters, so this is you know I in this family so Mimi and Papa played a huge role in my life as a matter of fact Mimi Jones was my Sunday school teacher, and I'm sure I put her through not a nice word, okay. I'm just being honest, right? But she loved me. And guess what? She's hiding the word of God in my heart. I had known for a long time. I knew the name of Jesus, okay? I knew the name of Jesus. So here's what happened. In that moment as an eight-year-old, you know, my life feeling like it's just falling apart and shattering, also in that moment something amazing happened. Jesus stepped into that hurt and that pain as an eight-year-old because I'd heard the name of Jesus. I knew he was there but I didn't have a relationship with him. There's a difference. So in October of 1990, right, while walking through this, trying to make sense of am I loved, am I accepted, basically what I'm telling you is I found my hope and my identity in Christ. In Jesus, October of 1990, I accepted Jesus into my heart, into my life. And he became my everything. Now, have I walked with him as close as I should? No, not all the time but he's never left me or forsaken me. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. He's my King. 
And I knew that as an eight-year-old. So, so if you can think of this brokenness here, and then Jesus, but then Jesus. There's going to be a theme there, so I want you to catch that. So as an eight-year-old, I, I came to know Christ, okay? He became my rock and my foundation. I accepted Jesus Christ into my life. We understand that. It became a relationship, not just a name, a person. So at, at eight years old, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to, this journey of, of a Christian, you know, being a Christian, being Christ-like, and still struggling with, you know, I, I'm just being honest. I mean, Jesus should be enough, right? But so many times, I love this saying. I, I've, there's a book actually written by it, but I love just the thought that we do this. We put Jesus plus nothing equals, anybody ever heard it? Everything. What's it say? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So really what it's saying is Jesus equals everything. But so many times we try to put something in that nothing spot, right? So quickly, right, the enemy is attacking in my life, and those, those things come back up again. Through middle school, through high school, dating was torture for me. I'm going to be honest with you, all right? I had grandpas chase me off porches with shotguns, and, you know, and I was a good kid, right? But my skin color was different. Okay, just, just how it was. So I, I, I couldn't figure out, you know, I'm, sh I'm struggling through that. And, and, and here's the thing, I kept hearing that word different, 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 because in my area where we're from, I love my community, I'm blessed with where I grew up, but it was a black and white, okay? So for me, I was weird. I was in the middle. That's just my reality, that's what I was brought up in. Now listen, I, God blessed me with a family that they never saw that, so I never really walked in it like some had to. Right? But for me, here's a struggle. I was a sports person. And on the sports field, that was my escape. I knew that, okay, if I can run faster, if I can hit farther, right, nobody's going to call me different or weird anymore. Right? I'm going to be the best. So in a lot of ways, Jesus plus what? Sports equals everything. So by the time I was in middle school, I had the nickname Earthquake. Okay? I was 200 and none of your business pounds in seventh grade. And don't stand in my way, okay? I'm going to knock your face mask off. You know what I'm saying? That's how I was going to gain respect, right? Because, and, but slowly, Jesus wasn't enough anymore, right? I started getting recognition. I got the nickname. Hey, that's Quake. They don't even know my real name, right? Earthquake. Then I went from middle school to high school, and they had to up the game. I became freight train. 255 pounds, benching 375, running a 4740. Boom! Fullback middle linebacker, Right? And I'm going to lose half my audience right now. I had a dream. You know what it was? To run through a checkered end zone and hear a hound dog and hear a song, right? You want to hear it? You sure? You want to hear it, brother? And for some of y'all, you know, I know ladies, maybe some of y'all, even some of you guys, the sports stuff, I'm going over. It's okay. But I had dreams of playing for Tennessee, okay? I think we might have you this year, but I'm not, you know, we'll see. We'll just, we'll see. We'll see. My father-in-law is a Florida fan, so I'm, I'm outnumbered all around, okay? But listen, I had a dream, right, of playing college football. That was my goal. I was built for it. My identity wrapping up in recognition and that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, I mean, I pushed hard. I worked hard because I was not going to let anybody tell me that I'm, that I'm different or weird anymore, okay? That was my motivation. 1998, I'm a junior in high school. Um... I, that year, I was all-state middle linebacker, only played in eight games, and nobody cares anymore because I'm bald and fluffy, okay? I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm just letting you know, 
right? That was my goal, and this is kind of what, and I, I think, um, I don't think necessarily God causes, wants to cause people harm, but I think he has to get our attention sometimes. I think God has a purpose for all of us, and he has plans, and sometimes we can let things get in the way. My junior year, uh, I'm running a fullback. I'm running a play up the middle. We needed two yards. I tried to fight for five. Whistle blew. I let up. Free safety came in, put his helmet in my lower back, bent me like this, okay? 300 disc and pinched nerve. Basically, what they told my parents were, okay, do you want this kid to walk, or do you want him to keep playing football? Do you want him to have a life or not? And my parents, thankfully, chose, you know, a better, less pain-free life. So at 17 years old, I had my first back surgery. I've had two. But I'm 17 years old. I had 300 desk pinched nerve, had a six-inch incision, and the dreams of playing, running through that checkered end zone, hearing that hound dog was gone. Okay? So now where am I left? First scripture I'm going to pop up here is Romans 12, 1 and 2. Because remember, remember my grandparents, I told you, Fanny Jones, and that ITs, I had a drug problem growing up. Every time the church doors were open, I was drug in and drug out, right? I had no I had no hope, but this Romans 12, I'm laying in bed for six weeks, and my dream's crushed, and I'm sitting here, okay, what do I do? And this, this the, the words that we hide in our heart, right, the, the word of God, the power that it has, I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm feeling, having a pity party, and I'm, you know, struggling here, and then I get to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let me read it to you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So I'm just telling you, the Lord, the Holy Spirit came over me in that moment. I'm sitting there, and I'm like, you know what? I'm alive. I got breath in my lungs. Right? Yeah, okay, football's gone. But God's, you know, I, I, I reached back into that eight-year-old that was so excited about accepting Jesus into my life and him being Lord and Savior and King. And I said, okay, Lord. Right there in that moment, I said, okay, I get it. My body, even broken and battered, is yours. I, I want your will, so show me. I'm going to work. Long story short, I dropped 60 pounds my senior year of high school. When the football team was out there practicing, I was running stadium laps. You know, got down and got healthy, wound up. God blessed me with the opportunity. I walked on and played baseball in college, okay? Played five years of college baseball. And in the midst of that time, I'm sitting in, I'm, I'm moving quick, but I want to get to a little bit more stuff here before I run out of time. As a freshman in college, I went into college not really caring about playing sports, but I heard a crack of a bat through my dorm room window. And I said, you know what? I saw a flyer. They said, open tryouts. Okay. Let's give it a shot. Let's just see what happens. And again, like I said, five years. But that freshman year, I, almost simultaneous in that moment, there, there was a, an afternoon, my roommate was out, and I'm sitting there just kind of reading scripture and doing my quiet time. And, and before I know it, I am on my knees in my dorm room. And I'm weeping. And I knew, here's what was going on. I, I went in possibly doing a music therapy degree was what I was going to do. But God was calling me into ministry. And here's what I was telling God. God, you, no. And it's not that I didn't want to do it. I didn't feel worthy. Okay? I know that being called to minister is such a worthiness, right? And But here's the thing I didn't, I lost sight of. He's not calling for perfection. He's calling to be called and to be obedient. 
And I'm telling him this, though, God, you can't use this broken person. You can't use me. You can't. I'm too dirty. I'm too messed up. And this is what I heard him say. You ready? If you'll lay down every broken piece, just watch me do it. Just watch me work. But you have to make a choice to let me go. And I, I kid you not, not without even knowing it, I'm not going to do it today because I may not be able to get back up, but I was laying on my face, face down on a dirty dorm room floor like college students. <laughs> that, that thing never got cleaned. You know, I'm laying on my face before the Lord, and I'm crying, and I'm weeping. I'm like, Lord, okay, one more step. Use me. Use me. So I changed my, declared my major, changed, right, declared the youth ministry, and the rest is history there. Right, met my wife. We got we. I took a church. Uh, I'm youth pastor in in Virginia. Uh, well, actually Tennessee. Uh, we were right on the border of Bristol. If anybody knows NASCAR, you know, right there on the state line. Then we went down to Florida and youth pastor in a church down there, and then youth pastor another church, all in the Tampa Bay area. Really suffering for the Lord. You know what I mean? Two miles from the beach. It's hard. It's a hard life. Hard life, right? But here we are. So I'm, I'm ministering and you know doing what God's called me to do and. Rachel and I, you know, we're in love, and she gets pregnant, right? She's got to do most of the work. We know that. I'm going to give her props, right? She gets pregnant, and then eight, eight weeks, we have a miscarriage. We lose our baby, okay? And she's wanted to be a mom since she was seven, day, or seven, seven years old. I'm glad she waited, right? If we're here to talk, I'm glad she waited. But, it's, I mean, since seven years old, she's wanted to be a mom. That's been a dream of hers. So when that happened, it was devastating for us, right? All we want to be is parents. Then she gets pregnant again, and we have Isabella. We have our oldest. Then she, we get pregnant again. She gets pregnant again. At 10, 10 weeks, we have another miscarriage. So we've lost two babies, have one successful pregnancy. Okay? And then here we are. She gets pregnant again. And, uh, and this will be our Eliana, our six-year-old. And then later we had Kayent, our three-year-old. So we've had, you know, one successful pregnancy and then, on the, on the end of that, we had a miscarriage both times, and then we're expecting Ellie, okay? About midway through the pregnancy, we're sitting in a 975-square-foot apartment in Tampa, Florida, and I, I, can't, I, I, just, I can't explain it to you, but the Spirit just came on me, and I was sitting in my computer, this little tiny apartment, and the Lord speaking to me, not so much an audible voice, but in my heart, and He says, it's time. And I'm, I, 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 I was like, what? I wrestled for about three days mentally, like, Lord, what are, you, what are you calling me to do? And pressing in the scripture and trying to figure out, okay, I know you're speaking to me, but I don't know, it's not clear. And basically, he gave me a few more words on day three, it's time to look for your birthing. And I said, Lord, I mean, I got, you know, a kid, and, uh, you know, I've had moments in my life, all through life, you know, like high school and middle school, like, why would this woman not want her child? If I do that, like, what, what's her circumstances? Maybe she's in a family and she's never told anybody about me, right? I don't want to be, I don't want that to devastate that situation, right? I want to be accepted, right? I don't know if I can handle that, Lord. He said, no, it's time. Three days. First, I got that paperwork out. Remember those eight pages of typewriter paperwork from 1982? I got that folder out my mom had kept. She journaled, my adopted family journaled for almost three years. You know, so, and I have pieces. So I get on Google, and I start doing name searches. First day, I found a newspaper article for a wedding announcement. Who I, uh, 
that had some names I felt like, okay, I think this might be, you know, my family possibly. Let's fast forward to day three. I came across a website for a man named Steve Holt. He's a magician and ventriloquist out of Spartanburg, South Carolina. And I'm sitting there, I'm reading his, you know, I'm like, why would that website come up? Magician? You know, illusionist? That's okay. So I'm reading his bio. And all of a sudden, this is what I see. I'm looking at this paper over here, computer screen here. All right, name. That matches here. Name. That matches. Okay, that's there. Then I come across one very important name. Glenda Sue Holt. That's my mom. So I sent this guy an email. I was like, I can't do this on the phone. I sent him an email and I say, what, what do you say? Hey, I'm your long lost nephew of 27 years. Email me back. But that's what I did. Okay, I didn't know what else to say. And uh, in, in the book that I was blessed to be able to write and get this story out, uh, my Aunt Vicky, actually, his wife, she's a children's author, helped me piece this together. Because I'd never written a book before. And she said, she records in there, she's like, when Steve read that on the screen, he literally about pushed himself out of the chair, you know, pushed back on his roller chair, you know, at the office. And he tried, he tried to call me at 1 in the morning. I was like, I, I can't do this at 1 in the morning. So I called him back at 7. We talked on the phone for what probably five hours, and he catches me up on some stuff. And long story short, we planned to meet. So we, we a couple months went by. I had I had summer camp and all this stuff to handle. We meet up. I spend four days with him. So here's what went down. He catches me up on all these missing pieces, and this is what happened. My mom was 18 years old. She was mentally challenged. She'd been awarded the state of Georgia in the Rome, Georgia area for almost uh, well. She's been awarded the state for her entire life. Uh, her parents died, both of them. So he, he was the, my Uncle Steve is the only person, uh, there's six siblings, he's the only one that doesn't have some sort of mental uh, handicap, okay? Just lost an uncle of mine at 42 years old. He had just learned how to feed himself, okay? So severe mental handicap. My, my mother, Glenda Sue Holt, only functions as an 11-year-old mentally. So she was set up with a, with a work program. She was living in a group home that she would walk to work. One evening on her way home from work, she was attacked brutally by five men. Okay, I'm a result of that. Don't know who my father was, don't know my race or ethnicity, but here's what, here's what happened. She's 18 years old, only in her mind functions as an 11-year-old child. I mean, her world is just, you know, what do you think that group home is telling her to do? Abort. If, if not abortion, at least adoption, because you can't have this child. You can't take care of this child. And you got to think, how, how many, all those siblings and all that, the way she's been brought up, they've been in or orphanages that we just talked about in Africa. They've been in orphanage, 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 and group homes and group homes, and they've, they've never had a sense of family. And, and all I, I'm being hypothetical here, but I'm trying to get inside my mom's head. As an 11-year-old mentally, she's 18, right, but 11-year-old, this baby's mine. I'm going to fight for him. So she actually ran away from that group home. She ran for nine months. No prenatal care, homeless. She wound up in Chattanooga, Tennessee at a woman's home, unwed mothers. And, and she actually ran away from there because they were probably telling her the same thing possibly. She wound up behind an old grocery store named Pickett's Grocery in a cardboard box to find shelter. A 16-year-old boy named Bobby 
came into her life, had a heart for this woman, 18 months pregnant, right, or 9 months pregnant, 18 years old. This 16-year-old shows up at his parents' house. Surprise! Here's this 18-year-old, 9-month pregnant. And, you know, they're like, what? Right? Light in the moment before we get heavy again. Right? So they're, hey, mom, dad, can we care for her? Can you imagine? I think this is where God intervenes. He gave them a heart, a loving heart, whether they believed in him or not, to take us in. They cared for us for two weeks. She got to the hospital. She gave birth to this little, little boy that she named Stevenson William Holt. And somebody's like, how did you get that name? My uncle's name was Stephen. My grandfather, her dad was William. She speaks with a lisp. See what happened? I want to name him then Steve, Stephen, then William. And whoever recorded it that day wrote Stephen, Stephen, Bill, Stevenson. I had an uh, elderly lady tell me in church one day, I, I was out in the back, and she said, son, I'm going to tell you something God showed me. You ever look in scripture where something got, uh, like where the devil meant for evil, but then God used it? I said, but then God. And against all odds, right? A society saying, you know what? This kid has no chance. She gave birth to me. They stole me from the hospital, okay? Snuck me out. 1982, security's not as tight, right? They snuck her and I out of the hospital and got us to back home. And, and I'm just going to be honest with you. They, they, found, they realized real quickly this 16-year-old, against the wishes of his parents, decided, you know what, we, need to, we can't provide for this child. That's why I was on the same bottle of formula and left the hospital room seven days later. He loaded, he loaded my mom and I up and dropped us off at Human Services in Marion County, Tennessee. And on that day, Joyce Holland... The Holland family got a phone call. She was teaching. She was in the auditorium with bus duty and said, we have a little boy here that needs a home. Will you take him? And she said, now listen, here's what I want to do for you. Those four days that I spent <clears throat> with my Uncle Steve, in those four days that went by, he about day three, he shares with me, kind of, he let, he didn't share all that right out the gate. We kind of spent time and it's more of a healing process for him probably than anybody because he hasn't had a normal, you know, we say normal, normal family member. He tells me, you know what, your mom is five hours south of here in a group home in Jeffersonville, Georgia. Would you like to see her? I said, yes, I would. I want to tell her I love her. I want to tell her that I don't care if she accepts me or not. I just want to tell her I love her. So here's what I want to do for you this morning before I leave. I got that on video. I want you to be able to see me meeting my mom, the woman that chose to give me life. Right now. i 
to show y'all how good God is. Glenda, you stay right here. Thank you. I wasn't going to do it this way, but we are. Glenda Sue. family that you gave him to, to take care of him, their, their last name was Holland. So his name is Stevenson William Holland. And this is Mama, you could be to me. We have pictures for you. He brought pictures for you. He has made a scrapbook for you. And he has, in the scrapbook, he has pictures of him. Remember the picture you carried of the little boy? You thought was your son, but wasn't real. But now you have real baby pictures of him and you have pictures of the Holland family Mr. and Miss Holland that raised him he has a lot of family and they love you they've always loved you son I love you from the bottom of my heart and I love you deeply in my heart and I, I want to say I'm glad that you're here today and mama loves you I have from this first time that you did my belly. I sung it to you. I believe you know she rang it to you. I remember all that. And this is your mama right here. And I love you like mama. And uh, I want to show you something that I've uh, I love to you. Something I want you to know that I love my family. And I know now I have a real big family that I can look forward to seeing. Jeremiah 29 11 for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope here's my challenge I don't want to be just pro-life I want to be pro-living God has given you breath, all of us. He has given you a story. It may not be Stevenson William Holland's story, but it's yours. 
and I'm thankful for the breath that he's given me. I'm thankful for the opportunity that he's, we we got to be, I stand back in awe and saying this, this woman's life right here, right? That against all odds, she chose life for her son. And I'm just, and it's, I don't say this to glorify me. It's all for him. We got, I was in front of 15,000 people last year and her talking about what I usually, I've held it together this morning for the most part, but I'll tell you what gets me every single time. I didn't have to meet her to know how big my God is, but I look at this woman, and I don't know if anybody caught it. Maybe you did. What did she say? I love Jesus. Remember that? Remember I told you Jesus plus nothing equals everything? There's this relationship that was severed for 27 years. I only get to see her three times a year. She can't take it, and it breaks my heart to see her where she's at, and I'm trying to rescue her. I can't afford to, but I'm trying. I just want to do everything in my power to get her in a place where she's in comfort right, and not in a, in a massive group home for the rest of her life, but here's the thing, because of Jesus, I got a relationship with Jesus, and she has a relationship with Jesus, so guess what, all this brokenness that we've faced on this side of heaven will be no more one day, amen, because of Jesus, and here's what I'm going to say, the part that I left out that y'all didn't know, guess what I do every week, not on the weekends, I travel and do ministry, on the week, I work for Shoals Save a Life, in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, speaking to 6,100 students, 8,000 probably this year, sharing about hope and sharing about how, you know what, their li- your life matters and it has purpose. Never mention the name of Jesus because I can't, but man, it shines through. So I just understand that when I, I know this is an un- unashamed plug for this center here locally. You, have a, you can make an impact. Maybe you can't give tons financially. You give what you can, but of time. Right, you can volunteer, do whatever it is. I just, I mean, I have a heart for. If it wasn't for places like this, who knows where I would be? If I would even be here at all. Okay, Cody, brother, I think that's it. I'm spent. I poured out. Thank you. Good job, brother. Church family, if Glenda Sue teaches us anything, it's that one person can affect thousands of people. Not based on their ability, not based on their intellect, not based on their brilliance, but on their faithfulness. There are a lot of people here this morning that have at their disposal greater resources than Glenda Sue could ever know. And have the opportunity to bring great change to a lot of people. There is not a doubt in my mind that God is calling out some of you to foster children. You know it. You fought it. Today I'm calling you to surrender to that. The man that leads us in worship every single week behind that guitar. Is there because in God's providence he used to foster family. There is no doubt in my mind that God is calling some of you to adopt. It's expensive. It's scary. The thought is overwhelming. Do you trust God? Today, would you just surrender? Would you just surrender? And some of you, you don't really know. You know God's calling you to do something. You're looking for what that looks. In the meantime, I'm going to invite you to come to the altar, to take one of these bottles and to pray over it. And above your tithe and offering, 
that you would give to Save a Life. Save a Life is a ministry here locally where if a young lady is pregnant and in the circumstances unfortunate, they go there. She's able to go there and receive counsel and resources and she'll see a sonogram and she'll see the baby. And the percentage of, of, uh, of, of young ladies that see their child on a screen and hear their baby's heartbeat that end up aborting that baby is virtually nothing. It's a tremendous opportunity. Some of you do not know yet know Christ. You know of him. But you are still living as an orphan in this world. And I invite you to come this morning to Christ. To be adopted into his family. To be his son. To be his daughter. So that he can do in your life what he has done in Stephen's and mine and so many others. Let me pray.